Welcome to Green Bull Radio. I'm your host, Kendall Titchener. On the show, we share how notable leaders use environment, social, and governance factors to make a positive impact. Connect with Green Bull Radio on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter by following at Green Bull Radio. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. Isabel O'Connell is a globally recognized ESG strategist and award honoree with a particular interest in the emerging issues relating to the S, social, of ESG. Isabel's work is concentrated on stakeholder engagement, social value creation, impact and risk assessment, strategy, and disclosures. She has previously held director-level positions in both industry and international consulting companies while contributing to various national and international sustainability dialogues. Notably, in 2020, she was appointed as a research fellow at Columbia University's Center for the Study of Human Rights Professional Certificate Program in New York City. In this episode, we explore the growing interest in business and human rights and the role investors play in incorporating it to create financial and social value. Thanks for joining us, Isabel. Um, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to speak and uh, to tell you a little bit more about me. So when I first came to Canada, I was a child. I came from um, immigrating to Canada has always made me aware of the importance of supporting others during transition periods. And the fact that building bridges with people is the only way we can truly gain like a common ground. Professionally, I originally planned to work in some capacity in government policy relations and planning, which would combine my geography and public policy studies, but I soon became more interested in the role of the private sector and what it plays in supporting communities, both from an environmental and social perspective. This also led me to recently um, enhancing my studies um, at the University of Rotman School of Business in investor relations. And um, I did that program through the Canadian Investor Relations Institute as well. But a big turning point in my career took place in 2004. I went to Guatemala for nine months to work with the International Development Agency, which is now Global Affairs Canada. And my project or contract was to support the startup of ancillary business opportunities and microloans in communities where Canadian mining companies were operating. And um, then I became rather interested uh, in 2011, so that's a big jump fast forward, when I was working uh, as a consultant in the Middle East, and I became aware of business and human rights. Of course, I'd been aware of human rights for quite some time, but this was when the UN Guiding Principles um, on business and human rights had been released and it was really starting to build momentum and it was that movement away from advocacy and philanthropy and seeing how businesses could address um, human rights issues in their operations and at the corporate level. I'll provide further detail on the UN, UN guiding principles later in this podcast but I really wanted to focus in on while I was the head of social sustainability at Qatar Petroleum in Doha, I was given the opportunity to integrate the UN guiding principles into the Qatar Petroleum sustainability mandate. I also had the pleasure of meeting the late John Ruggi, who spearheaded the UN guiding principles um, on one of his many trips to Qatar. 
great. Well, you've definitely led a very impressive life. So um, yeah, jump, jumping into the, the topic here, what, what does the term social economy mean? Social economy includes the structures voluntarily used for public benefit. Traditionally, these have been offered by associations, cooperatives, and foundations whose activities are driven by values of solidarity and there's democratic and participative governance. So these structures can be supported also by the private sector as well. And we continue to see this, especially during COVID-19 times. I see that the social economy is really a framework though, in which to understand the financial relationship with society. Because the social economy can support impact investing, it's a, impact investing is a good place for the private sector to also participate because it promotes investing with an intention to generate positive, measurable social and environmental impacts alongside a financial return. So very private sector focused. Also, impact investing can be a good place for a company to consider the S in ESG, environment, social and governance, which we hear continuously during this time, or even take center stage through three pillars that I like to consider the S in ESG. And those are education, protection from exploitation, and health. And these both, all three of these make up uh, another important term called the social footprint. So how does a company manage its own social footprint? Through risks and opportunities and impact. And it can easily be measured through informal interactions, formal engagement, measuring impact, and reporting on or to direct operations, supply chains, customers or clients, and local communities. I'll be getting more into detail as we proceed with this interview, but I just thought I'd touch on those four uh, points right now. So in the pursuit of profit, companies have not always prioritized the rights and well-being of people. Meanwhile, others have failed in their due diligence, uh, closing their eyes to what might happen across their supply chains. So this segues nicely into my next question, um, which is, what is business and human rights? Uh, What is the current state of business and human rights in the investor community? Thanks, Kendall. And I think this is where a really important piece comes into play is this podcast is really going to focus on the investors, but then also to somewhat touch upon companies as well. But by way of background, human rights are rights and freedoms held by every human being without discrimination. Obviously though, businesses are important too. They provide investment, jobs, and much needed services, but business does not always benefit a full array of people. It doesn't, sometimes businesses have the potential to harm people, communities and the environment. And we've seen that in many um, news stories. This is where um, addressing business and human rights can be very important because business and human rights promotes, if not propels, a company to act with dignity, fairness, equality, and respect, or committing to that social license to operate approach. Business and human rights is especially important supply chain level and is becoming more commonly known as modern slavery from a, a legislation perspective. From the investor perspective, 
institutional and individual um, investors' responsibility is to respect human rights as defined by the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. By way of background, the UN Guiding Principles were formally and unanimously endorsed by the UN Human Rights Council in 2011 as the default framework for businesses to engage in business and human rights initiatives and strategy via three pillars, protect, respect, and remedy. Business and human rights has been an issue for responsible investors as well, notably socially responsible pension funds, mutual funds, and faith-based investors. But many investors remain unaware um, of their responsibility to respect human rights or even what human rights means from that business perspective. But we'll get into that a bit more. Yeah, this is great, great context, because I think the UN uh, guiding principles on business and human rights isn't something that's uh, commonly discussed, but I'm definitely noticing, um, you know, those topics come up, namely in supply chain issues, um, in kind of the investor and and ESG front. Yeah, for sure. um, So what are examples of business and human rights issues investors and companies are dealing with in 2021? Okay, well, business and human rights continues to receive significant attention and and development in 2021. So it's been 10 years since they were endorsed. They've been circulating around various businesses for 10 years. And it's like they are growing in popularity, and in particular because of the importance of the promotion of ESG um, during these COVID times and beyond. But In particular, social issues that relate to justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, better known as JEDI, um, are well-established issues in the business and human rights arena. They can almost be used as buckets, those four um, words and uh, pillars, and investors and businesses can just put their different activities in those or organize them that way. But... Many of the issues that are categorized as environmental or governance issues, such as access to water, tax fairness, equity payments, or even just climate justice, also affect and influence business and human rights. But globally, we're currently having to consider the issues that are what in business and human rights terms are coined salient issues. That's a very bespoke business and human rights term for material issues or those of great importance to an entity or group. And those business and human rights issues are human trafficking, modern slavery, refugee and migration crises, gender equality, children and LGBTQ rights, technology, cybersecurity and data protection, nationalism, the growth of it, and uh, sadly, the attacks on journalists and human rights defenders is becoming more prevalent. That's um, an interesting acronym you bring up, Jet, uh, JEDI. I haven't heard of that. Justice, mm-hmm. uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, that's uh, It's memorable. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> um, so what are the business and human rights issues in Canada? Okay, Canada's um, interesting because On one hand, it's leading, and on the other hand, it's lagging in business and human rights. But Canada's private sector is increasingly focusing on international corporate activities. So 
everything from sweatshops to mining conflict minerals to unsafe factory conditions in emerging markets, the list goes on. But in 2021, Canadian businesses, both at home and abroad, have also had to consider business and human rights implications and issues from COVID-19, climate change, and Indigenous relations. However, the negative side is Canada lags behind other countries in enacting a business and human rights legislation. Other governments have passed issue-specific legislation, such as the state of California and the EU, which have enacted uh, supply chain transparency and conflict minerals. The UK and Australia have modern slavery acts and human trafficking um, as well. And the Netherlands has one regarding specifically child labor. But Canada is making some headway because in April 2019, the first ever position of its kind in the world, an Ombudsman for Responsible Enterprise was appointed and it is known as CORE. This position was designed to increase accountability for Canadian companies operating abroad in the mining, oil and gas and garment industries with a specific focus on business and human rights. Fast forward to November 2020, so almost a year ago, steps were taken by the Government of Canada to enact a Modern Slavery Act. But this was the third attempt at enacting the, a Modern Slavery Act. Um, so Canada really just needs to um, implement its commitments in the fight against modern slavery and business and human rights. And it needs to sort of emphasize that more um, issues of uh, anti-forced labor and child labor. And we've seen that in the acts, Kendall, that are being drafted and developed, but you know, whether they get passed in parliament is the next big thing. However, you know, we do have some provinces in Canada that have their own ombudsman for um, human rights. And we also have um, some cities who have taken it um, under their uh, opportunity to uh, look at, you know, specifically at um, some human rights issues like um, trafficking and um, children's rights. And of course, the ever important um, LGBTQ as well. So why should investors and companies uh, care about and demonstrate a commitment to business and human rights issues? Mm, another great question. So really, it gets down to expectations, and they've only increased. And they're really driven by an urgency around many human rights issues, some of them that I pointed out in my previous question, but also understanding the investor's role in shaping concrete outcomes and their responsibility to do so across portfolio and investment activities. Leading investors um, recognize that international standards also leads to better financial risks and management, and it helps align their activities with demands of beneficiaries, clients, and the ever important regulator. Um, companies that are associated with business and human rights abuses expose themselves to operational risks such as delays or cancellations, legal and regulatory risks such as lawsuits or fines, and reputational risks such as negative press coverage and um, brand damage. These are all important issues for a uh, investor to look at and uh, consider. But for companies that operate in emerging markets, so in the global south, particularly Canadian companies in the oil and gas, uh, mining, and in the garment sectors, really the, it, a business and human rights controversy can represent a big threat. 
Yet the company's attention to those risks often is behind the attention that it could receive from, let's say, an environmental disaster or even at times a governance disaster. So really, that's where investors are starting to show a bit more of a commitment um, is around, okay, looking at the governance and the environmental challenges that a company has had or currently has and thinking, okay, what is the business and human rights lens that can be brought to that challenge? But as I said previously, there's, there is this momentum with government governments to champion human rights and embed their expectations of investors and companies into both law and regulation. And that's where the key is. I think that's going to be almost like the, um, the linchpin in all of this is once we, Canada, has that, has that regulation and those um, legislation in place. Okay, so we know it's important. Um, So where is a good place for investors to start with business and human rights? Okay, so this is a very important question and one that I would like to take some time responding to. So I have three parts that I'd like to break apart and explain further. So part one, an investor really needs to see if the company has a human rights policy has conducted due diligence on how they treat their workers, including the contractors and customers fairly, because the internal delivery is just as important as the external delivery. As cliche as that sounds, it's very important. Also, setting up options for claims, whistleblowing, and remediation mechanisms are very important, even if the workforce is not uh, unionized. Of course, all that information has to be in the public domain and progress reporting should be going and uh, the company should be speaking about it regularly. Part two, uh, an investor can also check whether the company has had shareholder resolutions or recent activism campaigns. These can be found in the company's general meeting minutes, in their press releases, or if the company is listed, an investor can refer to CDAR in Canada or the EDGAR in the United States, which is uh, part of the uh, SEC, which is the Security Exchange Commission. And then part three, and this is one that is very important, but can be very overwhelming for investors, is to do research. And a good place for investors to start is civil society. And there are a few options that I can outline here. One of them is called Know the Chain, and they look at understanding forced labor risks within supply chains um, across about three sectors. And then another entity is called the Corporate Human Rights Benchmark, and they have an annual report that comes out, and it looks at 230 global companies in a wide range of sectors. And they're ever growing. Other research is undertaken by S&P Global ESG Evaluation. Another favorite one that I've just come across is Walk Free's Global Slavery Index, Shift, and of course the Business and Human Rights Centers. These um, entities they all produce thought leadership and very practical pieces on business and human rights. We're also seeing more and more stock exchanges throughout the world, um, including business and human rights indicators and or requesting companies, if they are listed on that stock exchange, to represent or reference the UN guiding principles for investors to be aware of, too. And on a final note, um, numerous companies in Canada right now are aiming to go public in 2021. 
and in 2022 as well. And many of them are acknowledging their role in managing social concerns. And they're leveraging this uh, or their responsibility to generate interest in their IPO as a way to appeal to investors. Really kind of an interesting campaign approach. Great. Yeah, thanks for all of that. I think that you did a great job of outlining some really um, practical ways and, and even uh, places for for companies or investors, um, investors looking to start with um, business and human rights issues and kind of begin that journey. So so thanks for being so, so functional and practical in uh, in your response. How are investors moving the dial on social factors? So more often than not, uh, courts aren't around to enforce the punishment uh, that is often a company's ability to do business. Uh, they're, they're disrupted in, their, in this emerging economy or location where they're operating. And um, what happens is, though, back home in Canada, let's say a company then might lose access to certain markets and they may scare away not only the stakeholders but also the investors and the investors are becoming more of an entity of their own so they are stakeholders but they're sort of standing in a different area of the uh, ESG map um, so if those uh, companies that are doing poorly um, are you know their reputation is is being um, you know wrecked in the press. That makes um, investors really nervous, and this is particularly true for ins institutional investors because they're sensitive to reputational risk, and they tend to re reduce their interest when a company is experiencing ethical and legal challenges. And also the ongoing negative media exposure, and with social media today, it's everywhere, that can make an investor very nervous, especially at the institutional uh, level. However, some investors believe that prioritizing social factors from the get-go allows the company to pass like a moral test. And um, the prospect of a profit can create another basis for examining the social impact and the liability issues. It's an interesting dial to look at. For example, some companies change in less meaningful ways. They attract and keep investors by doing something like changing their name. And an example of this is in 2018, the mining company known as BHP rebranded to BHP Billiton after 19 people were killed when a dam burst at one of its joint ventures in Brazil. In this instance, investors had to explore what lay behind BHP's rather rash public action and reporting around their name change. And uh, there was some challenges around that, particularly at the institutional investor side. But simply put, the market where investors operate tend to reward those companies that minimize their exposure to negative social issues. Are there forces behind this changing dynamic and how investors are demonstrating a commitment to advancing business and human rights? Well, incorporating business and human rights into investment decisions requires investors to identify and understand salient risks at the sector level, understanding cross-industry themes, how to engage companies, shareholders, and governments laterally and collaboratively. Forces can include Again, the power of the 
pension corporations, very important in Canada, the rise of gender lens investing, the run-up to COP25, moving past consultation to a co-creation approach, so thinking along the lines of partnerships, and of course, the rising number of ESG disclosures and the need for double materiality. So financial materiality and of course, sustainability materiality and those two coming together, which ESG can support and promote. But investors are really demonstrating, um, Kendall, the commitment to business and human rights. And they're doing so through considering transparency initiatives. And Tiffany Jewelry is a good example with their Origins program, Diamond Craft and About Love campaigns. The second would be metrics, considering who is reporting and engaging with whom, and of course, making it public. And the third is education and awareness, both their own and taking into account those benchmarks and the rankings and keeping on top of those. But the next two points that I'm gonna bring up are really important for investors. And one of them is working with proxy providers and asset or fund managers and doing so as allies on how business and human rights due diligence issues are being addressed by companies. So really offering that framework for a company to work with and work with investors at the same time. And the next bullet I have is uh, publicly screening companies in or out of funds to decipher whether a fund, investor, or company should invest in a particular region, country, or sector, because it's the broader looking at the company. So it's both the external and that internal just as important. Yeah, those are all really interesting points. Um, the I wasn't aware of kind of this rise of, of partnering versus simply um, consulting. And then um, I think on a higher level, we, we hear about uh, transparency, but I guess how that looks even from um, you mentioning double materiality and what that means now, um, that's another interesting trend too. So are there any closing remarks that you'd like to leave listeners with? Oh, I just felt like I was just starting here. So um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you again for having me. But there are a few remarks. And you know, one that really sticks out to me is I haven't discussed governance. And there's really no single governance model that's universally appropriate for how investors address social issues especially business and human rights, it's such an emerging issue, even though it's you know, been around for 10 years, if not longer. Um, but the UN guiding principles really is the best place to start. And it, there's certainly room for further cons considerations as well. The UN, OECD have guidelines as well, and you know, certainly on that governance side. But investors really need to keep an eye on the efforts of corporate boards um, and what the decisions they're making and becoming more engaged in the S. And corporate boards are showing such a great interest right now in diversity. So that could be a really great place to start a conversation about business and human rights for a company. Um, then also too, investors are always need to consider the context so that regional presence, local expertise, standards, and of course, regulations in which the company's operating because that will affect the human rights um, due diligence process. And on a final note, we'll, all of us as citizens, both of Canada and elsewhere, um, have a fiduciary responsibility and the need to be business and human rights champions. And we're seeing that more and more in campaigns that are uh, being offered throughout Canada. And we're also, you know, 
ever hopeful that the ESG movement will continue and support business and human rights and in providing investment opportunities to be more, you know, innovative, but also support broader economic growth and business and human rights as a movement, as an approach, as a lens can, you know, really help uh, Canada and other countries, you know, build back better. Yeah, that's um, a great point that you kind of ended on there Um, and empowering, too, that we all do have a fiduciary responsibility and need to be champions. I think, unfortunately, sometimes um, we have a tendency as humans to want to shift kind of the blame or the accountability elsewhere. But at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, we all can make a difference and, and move the dial. Exactly. We're all consumers. Um, we're all contributors. And uh, if we can even just keep that, the JEDI acronym in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad that you brought that up. That's uh, a really uh, interesting point that I'm going to have to do some more digging on too. Mm-hmm. Um, so on, on that note, how can listeners get in touch with you? Well, I'm very active on LinkedIn. And my name is Isabel Alice O'Connell. And I do have a YouTube channel as well. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Green Bull Radio. I'm your host, Kendall Titchener. Please submit guest ideas and ESG-related questions on social media at Green Bull Radio on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thanks for listening.